Welcome to the Great American Novel Podcast. I'm Kirk Kerna. And I'm Scott Yarbrough. And on this episode, our first one that we're getting into Great American Novels, we're going to do the novel that I think everybody thinks of when they think of a GAN, which is what, Scott? It's going to be Moby Dick by Herman Melville. And it's a book that has the heft and the reputation and the difficulty and deals with American subjects, all those things we think of. Ever since the beginning of time, man has pitted himself against the power of the sea to learn its secrets, to solve its mysteries. Many stories have been told of ships and the men who sail them, of sea beasts and the men who hunt them. But none has captured the imagination through the years so much as Herman Melville's immortal story of Captain Ahab, who lost his very soul in the bitterness of vengeance against the great white whale, Moby Dick. It is a book that I think, uh, and also in terms of its reception history and its sort of rediscovery after 60 years of obscurity also embodies that idea of the great American novel that it's before its time. Right. And you pointed out to me, of course, that it's on the cover of the book we talked about last time, the Lawrence Boyle dream of the American novel. Yeah. And I think that's because there's, when we think of great American novels, we tend to think of uh, activities, right? Uh, Adventures of Huckleberry Finn or Adventures of Augie Marsh. Uh, So there needs to be some action in a great American novel. And I think one of the reasons people go to images of Moby Dick is because there's something just so so sweeping and panoramic about whaling and whaling adventures. So that's part of the reason that I think Moby Dick is kind of the quintessential gan. And I know you've described this book as a national epic before, Kirk. What do you mean by by epic in this context? Well, I think a lot of Gans, the point of it is to make a statement about America, about American identity, about the process of establishing an American identity. And I think Moby Dick does something that... Not a lot of these GANs necessarily succeed in, which is using a particular industry as opposed to a specific person to convey, to act as a kind of symbol of the making of that national identity. So we're in a sense using whaling as a metaphor for the nation, for the creation of the country, for the evolution, the management, the production of it. And it's once a celebration of the heroism of the founding of America, but it's also a pretty intense critique of uh, the economic and the moral and the uh, racial systems on which that uh, industry is built. Absolutely. And it also tackles, which for I think the first hundred years of the American literary scene is always part of the background, which is about trying to be out in nature, trying to conquer nature, trying to erode the frontier and grow society and grow civilization. And sometime in the 20th, early 20th century, that focus changes, but it's certainly from the days of James Fenimore Cooper until we get to the 
pre-World War One era is certainly a big part of what makes American literature significant as well. Right. If you think of America as a unspoiled, the new world, the unspoiled paradise, there's an effort in a lot of these early GANs to really chart or map the terrain of, of the nation. And uh, of course, in Moby Dick, that we're not really looking at the exploration of America, we're looking at America's place in the in the world because most of this novel takes place uh, in the ocean, right? And so, you know, we're really talking. Uh, we might think of this as a global novel about Americans' place in the world, but you're exactly right that uh, that idea of engaging with nature. I think as America becomes more industrial that shift turns inward because people's lives become much more regulated by, you know, business clocks and production systems. So we really are dealing with still the pioneer spirit. And uh, it's interesting that Melville chooses whaling as an industry because in the early 1850s, it's really at its peak. It's America's energy source because the oil out of the whales is what the you know is what fuels lamps and right. and uh, in the pre-electricity era, and that's going to be replaced within uh, twenty years. So we're really it's it's kind of as if somebody today tried to write the great American novel about a technology that is totally past. If if we took you know, the telephone as a symbol of America at this point. And, or even the oil industry, which yeah. we would hope or think that we're going to see some giant improvement and changes there in the next decade or two as well. And so as we think of this, you know, what, a, what an interesting time in literary history when this novel comes out in 1851, because in a two or three year span, we have the Scarlet Letter, we have Uncle Tom's Cabin, we have David Copperfield on the front end, and just after it, we have Bleak House by Charles Dickens over in England. In the United States, of course, we call this time period the American Renaissance, which is a little bit of a misnomer because it's not a rebirth, it's a birth of the great literary movement, and it's picking up, I guess, with the American Romanticists and Transcendentalists from 10 years, 15 years before, but really hitting a stride around this time. Right. And and here we have then all this going on and all this energy, and it seems to be the cultural zeitgeist. And of course, the, the foremost American writer of the time is arguably, and he's at least in the top two or three, Nathaniel Hawthorne. Hawthorne had quite a bit of influence on Melville, didn't he? He did indeed. And this is uh, his friendship was transformative. One of the most important dates in literary history is August, 15, August 5th, 1850 when Hawthorne and Melville actually met in person, taking a hike up Monument Mountain in the Berkshires. You know, Melville had read Hawthorne. Uh, within a couple weeks of meeting Hawthorne, he wrote a very famous review of Hawthorne's short story collection, Mosses from an Old Manse. And this is kind of weird to think about, but remember that in the 1840s and 1850s, there was still this sense in the in the growing literary industry of America that we could never be as good as Britain because right. we did not have a tradition. And so when one argument that Melville made was he called Hawthorne the American Shakespeare, which was very audacious. 
and Hawthorne was embarrassed about it. But I think what if, if you almost have to read that review to get a grip on Moby Dick and to understand sort of what he's doing, because his basic argument is if you want a readership in America, you have to be like Hawthorne and you have to take a subject that on the surface can be read by genteel readers and taken lightly. But then it also has to appeal to the deep divers. And that notion of the deep diving reading, I think, is what Melville is really after in Moby Dick. It's almost like there's two books here. There is the whaling adventure, and then there is the adventure as a metaphor for intellectual, moral, religious knowledge. And Hawthorne was very embarrassed, I think, about um, Melville's hero worship of him. But uh, in Moby Dick, of course, is dedicated to Nathaniel Hawthorne. But it's, it's absolutely clear that if August 5th, 1850 had never happened, that Moby Dick would be a very different book. Right. And early on, of course, the fact that it's operating on various levels didn't do it any favors in terms of American sales or reception by American book reviewers. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty astonishing to think that in the 40 years between 1851 and 1891, when Melville died, Moby Dick sold a whopping total of about 3,700 copies. Wow. And in the 20s and 30s, if you were into antiquarian or rare book sales, you could get a copy of first edition Moby Dick still for uh, $5, $10. It was not... It was not valued at all. The original reviews just, for the most part, didn't understand the book. Even Melville's friends. There's a famous uh, review by one of the leading literary figures of the day, who's kind of considered old-fashioned now, named Ever Dykink, who called it an intellectual chowder. And uh, I think for most American critics who were still, you know, a little timid, they felt that uh, the book was simply unhinged and uh, a little too dark and even heretical. There's a lot in this novel that is confrontational about religious uh, heterodoxy. And it is pretty much the death knell of his career, these negative reactions. He tends not to publish much in the next many decades. He's finally, after he goes back to working uh, as a customs inspector in New York Harbor, he eventually starts working on the novella Billy Budd, which is not nearly as complex as Moby Dick. It's a little bit of an allegory, so maybe more complex than his earliest work, but less complex than, say, Bartleby the Scrivener or uh, Benito Serino and certainly Moby Dick. And then, of course, he dies kind of unheralded and unacknowledged as an artist or writer and vastly unappreciated given the significance of this book today until we have a book that comes out, Herman Melville, Mariner and Mystic in, is it uh, 1921, Kirk? Yeah, this is the centennial of that book, which basically kicks off what we think of as the Melville or Moby Dick industry. Now, there had been advocates for Moby Dick Before that, they were few and far between. Uh, Raymond Weaver was encouraged to write the book by Mark Van Doren, 
uh, who was his faculty colleague who loved the book. And, you know, but it was after Mariner and Mystic that Melville was kind of rediscovered. And I think what had to happen is there had to be a sort of academic literature had to become a little more ingrained in universities mm. as a as something to be studied for Moby Dick to be fully appreciated because so much of that book is about uh, is about erudition and is about uh, source studying keep in mind for the first couple decades of Moby Dick a lot of a lot of the interpretive work had to be done was chasing down his sources some of which he transcribed directly into Moby Dick. Right. I mean, there are whole passages from various whaling histories that he the sort Scorsby of, book, right? Exactly. That he just sort of borrowed. One of my favorite books when I was a graduate student was a book called The Trying Out of Moby Dick. And uh, that was one that just kind of went chapter by chapter and told you every single source that he had used. And what's great about it is it was, it was really like, it's one of those books like Ulysses, where you almost have to have a reader's guide alongside to understand it. Sure. Well, and I think that's a good transition to our whole, you know, question of why are people scared of Moby Dick? There's a famous letter that actually Weaver quotes, but everyone else has quoted as well, that he writes to Nathaniel Hawthorne about the quality of his work. So his his early books like uh, White Jacket, telling the stories of his adventures. He'd grown up in a fairly prosperous family that started losing its income as he came of age. He's very well educated as a young man, but the the legacy he perhaps expected to inherit, the ability to pay for ongoing education and to set him up in the world, all that is pulled out from under his feet a bit. And so his decision then is to go out and see the world as a sailor. And he goes out on various ocean voyages and spent, including at one point, he does 18 months in a whaler. And so when he comes back, his earliest books are all my adventures in the South Pacific and what it's like to hang out with uh, people who are cannibals and worry if you're the next meal and things I've seen all around the world. And this is, of course, before National Geographic television <laughs> and before satellite dishes and cell phones and videos and selfies and all these things. So people were ravenous for this kind of stuff and it sold relatively well. Yeah, Taipei was uh, very salacious as well because the minute the ship pulls into the harbor, they are boarded by a bevy of beautiful Polynesian women, various states of undress. And one of the things that Melville sort of insinuates is that the sailors took, you know, took sexual pleasure with the women. And so it it kind of it was a very audacious book and it's time. Melville is kind of like F. Scott Fitzgerald and he came out of the gate with the best-selling book of his career. And he resented that for the rest of his life. I mean, he was bitter about the fact that he would go down in history as the man who lived among cannibals, he said. Right. Well, and this, and this is in that letter to Hawthorne. He says, right. What I feel most moved to write, that is banned. It will not pay it altogether, right? The other way I cannot. So the product is a final botch, excuse me, is a final hash, and all my books are botches. And that, I think, encapsulate what he's trying to do in Moby Dick, because it is certainly the damnedest novel. Yeah. On the one hand, you know, adventure story, linear plot, 
straightforward, okay. But on the other hand, we have the text itself going from being very thick and complex with, as one of my professors used to say, the words are printed very close to the page in almost a pre-Jamesian way. We have on then other sections where the prose just trips along. The there's shifting points of view where most of it's told from the point of view of Ishmael, our first person narrator, but then there are third person chapters, which cannot be told by him, or if they are, he's clearly taking on the role of author as well as narrator. There are dramatic chapters where it's told as if by play. There are seeming nonfiction essays among the chapters. There are faux essays where it's clearly essaying forth on something that he doesn't believe at all. And then of course, it's an adventure story too. So we, we can feel sympathy for the readers who have a difficult time plowing through it and, and diving deep to use start using more nautical metaphors and farming metaphors because it's a lot to dive through yeah. throughout. And I think that one of the way of, get, of getting past that sort of uh, barrier of resistance is to listen to fans of the book and hear where their enthusiasm comes from. There's a whole genre out there of what I call love letters to great classics. Uh, right. There's one by Maureen Corrigan on The Great Gatsby, and Rebecca Mead did a beautiful one on Middlemarch. But for Moby Dick, there's one by Nathaniel Philbrick called Why Read Moby Dick, which I think is a very practical, very interesting sort of entry into the novel in which he takes up the very, you know, topics here and there and explains them very straightforwardly. It's not an explication of the text, but what it does do is I think convey sort of the enthusiasm about why it's an important book. And we should mention too that one of the reasons Moby Dick has endured is it is interpretable as a political allegory. Right. And I think at different periods of history, people have gone back to it, using it as a mirror for the uh, for the uh, their own upheavals in history and trying to understand that. Because the whole background of the book, of course, is in the early 1850s, the United States is hurtling toward the Civil War. Right. And so, even though this is a novel, not a novel directly about slavery, like that other great early 1850s classic Uncle Tom's Cabin that is in the background. And a lot of what this book is about is about the nature of democracy and political leadership. So there he is. He's trying to make a hash of his two different approaches, right? On the one hand, we have the notion of it's about a obsessive damaged man's quest to defeat God and nature in the form of a horrific a uh, white modeled sperm whale that he has antipathy toward named Moby Dick. And on the other hand, of course, we have all these other things going on. And it, there are pure elements of allegory throughout, which we'll get to in just a little bit. And there's all these ways that it makes use of the scientific knowledge of the time. And it is very interesting to read this book and realize it predates the origin of the species by eight years. Exactly. Exactly. Lots of he he really works hard to be up to date with his science in this, and we also see he's making constant references to other works of literature. The the rhyme and ancient mariner is very heavily, mm-hmm. certainly not quoted, but referenced throughout. And there are of course very obvious references to the albatross and to the notion of the 
going against nature and thus going against the will of God and that kind of romantic flavor from Coleridge and other romantics as well. We see constant biblical references as well. There's a couple different genres that we could use to sort of understand how to place this. Uh, I think you make an excellent point when you say this is not traditional fiction in the sense of a narrative consciousness in the in the way that would almost become inhibiting in later years with people like Henry James and Joseph Conrad, where they insisted on a sort of single perspective uh, uh, by way of uh, uh, telling a story. Um, But one way of thinking of this book is Melville was very much influenced by a book uh, called uh, Anatomy of Melancholy. And I think the very term anatomy was a kind of genre that he related to the idea that it a great book was about everything at once. Right. And so you're always working toward every single thing means has layers of significance. Another term that I think it may be a very literary term, but sometimes called a manipian satire. And all that means is I, I like to think of these as kitchen sink books. <laughs> they are really their best tool is to inspire authors beyond a simple realistic depiction of a plot to incorporate other forms of discourse or language. And I think of them as kitchen sink books where everything goes in because if you leave something out, it's incomplete. And I think part of the greatness of Moby Dick is there's a constant strain of what later becomes a kind of a cliche, but it gets used a lot, is a term called metafiction, which is the book is as much about the writing of the book. So the pursuit of Moby Dick in the novel is really a metaphor for Melville's own effort to write the novel, to pursue this grand ambition of an idea to create a literary text that's going to encompass not just the literal and not just one symbolic meaning, but all kinds of layers of significance. And if we think of 20th century kitchen sink books, we might think of the recognitions by Gaddis. We might think of Infinite Jest by David Foster Wallace. And of course, from metafiction, his story, Bartleby the Scrivener, only really works if you apply metafiction to it. Yeah, And we might think of Old Man in the Sea by Hemingway, as much as Hemingway said, no, it's just a fish and he's just a guy in a boat, when very clearly it's anything but just a fish and just a guy in a boat as well. And you can think of other books like, uh, you know, The Grapes of Wrath, sure. um, Steinbeck's decision to write alternating chapters. One, the fam, the, you the know, on family. one side, the Jode family, and then on the other side, the sort of broader perspective of the conditions. And so that would be an example of pushing a narrative towards something more ambitious, more experimental. You can think even in Beloved of the later passages in the book that are just pure poetry. Right. So there's an effort to elevate the novel beyond simply a, a depiction of a plot. Now, keep in mind, Moby Dick, at the time that Moby Dick was written, people's conception of the term novel was not even used, to be perfectly honest. These books would be called romances. Right. But the, the idea, the types of um, orthodoxies or the types of rules we think about fiction writing 
were not quite in place. So in, in some ways, authors had a lot more uh, latitude to mix and mingle. Absolutely. And in fact, the if we think of the literary context at the time, historical context, as you said, this is during the, the great stage of American expansionism in terms of expansion across the continent, right after the hills of the War of Mexico. So the legacy of, of James K. Polk is is realizing manifest destiny. It's no longer a doctrine, but something that's actually happening because uh, the United States now has control of California. And in the cultural terms, we have as a kind of initially a response to a reaction against the Enlightenment and Industrial Revolution, we had the literary movement of Romanticism, the idea that all of the workings of the world have been laid out for you by God in nature. And by digging into nature, you come to understand the world. And yet, although Melville's clearly toying with Romanticism, there are Romanticist elements throughout. They are peculiarly later American Romanticism and not classic Romanticism because he he goes against that and even how it's filtered into American transcendentalism, right? Yeah, I think he would, we would say that he would probably be more drawn toward the European man, uh, Romanticism of Byron or of Goethe. The American Romanticism, especially if we think of Emerson or Thoreau, they tend to be a little more optimistic, a little more upbeat, a little more, a little more. Uh, in Melville's mind, he would have called it naive. And he has a famous letter after reading a couple of, uh, of Emerson's essays where he says, this not, guy has never, you know, been around the Cape of Good Hope in a, in a storm <laughs> because their concept of nature was that it was benign. And I think a lot of what we see in Moby Dick is that nature is violent and nature, uh, nature has a malevolence to it that we are trying to understand our place in. And so I think Melville's, you know, when we, we see a lot of different personifications of nature in Moby Dick, there are times when storms are portrayed as almost devils, but then there are almost, there are times where the great lulls in the ocean are almost hypnotic and carry, carry the sailors away into a sort of, dreaminess that Melville says we have to caution against as well. And he's also drawing, I think, because he wants to write a book, and keep in mind, there's, other than Hawthorne, there's no real American competitor to to measure yourself against. So when he's trying to stand on the shoulders of giants, he's looking back to Shakespeare and Milton. Right. And, you know, those elements of this novel are so overt. It's not just that he inscribes the plot of King Lear and makes Ahab into a kind of King Lear figure or uh, Milton Satan. It's that he uses that language. And I think that's probably one of the elements that can absolutely not be replicated today. As a, I mean, imagine a novelist today trying to write uh, Shakespearean soliloquies in the middle of a novel. Absolutely. And there's a lot of speculation that he chooses to to make Ahab a Quaker just so he can use the outdated English formal case, which we see in, the, for instance, the King James Bible. And there are a couple of good books, by the way, on the influence of King James translation of the Bible in on you know the influence on Melville as well as other writers. One of them is a book called Pen of Iron, 
by Robert Alter as we go into this. So we have the Quakers using thee and thou and haft and all these outdated, again, formal and, and antiquated terms, or I should say usages uh, throughout. They give it an elevated, again, Shakespearean, Miltonian vibe throughout as well. And he, and again, as he delves into Romanticism, very much he is following along the line that we see a little bit in Hawthorne where the danger of hubris, yeah. when you think you're greater than nature, um, setting up this conflict. To my mind, it comes out of not only Coleridge, but also Mary Shelley, the notion of you know man trying to usurp the place of God in nature and the dangers right. that come from that level of, of arrogance and pride that will lead to your fall. And so we had those themes in here, but of course, that's only one of the subtexts you can read throughout the novel. And I guess it's not that subtextual. It's clearly discussed by people like Starbuck throughout the novel when there's their setting, you know, sell with the Pequot toward the well. In the last chapters, he says that Starbuck says, I feel as if I'm selling against my God here. Yeah. But there's all these other things going on. So for instance, Kirk, let me ask you a question. We have there's scar tissue or something like that running down the middle of Ahab. And his hair is different. He's been struck struck by lightning. He's been struck by lightning. He's been mauled by Moby Dick. So that on one side of him, he's got a very tan, earthy, swarthy appearance, as you might expect from a seaman who spends most of the year out under the baking sun of the, you know, on the middle of the ocean. And this side is very white and pale. So we have this dividing line between light and dark in him. Does that make you think of anything going on in the United States of 1850 and 51? Yeah, it's very much tied into, as I mentioned earlier, the abolitionism and the the contests about whether slavery was going to tear the country apart is very much an element in the novel. I think, too, that just to go back to Ahab a bit, you mentioned some of the things that he suffered. One detail that it's easy to overlook, and this has always struck struck me, that you know after he lost his leg uh, and they got back to land, he was found at one point on the ground in a, another stupor, unable to get up because his leg had snapped and speared him in the groin. Right. So there is this notion that not he's he suffered a kind of double wound. Not only has he had his leg bit off by a whale, but then the artificial leg has has cost him his man, manhood. Ah. You know, that's a big theme in, in American literature. There are a lot of male, maimed men in, a, in American literature, which becomes a sort of metaphor for their ability to stand up against nature. And, you know, one of the classical figures that's always referenced with Ahab is Prometheus. Yes. But the other is a term that references what you were talking about with British Romanticism, which is the Byronic hero. Right. And, you know, the figure that, that stands up. But to go back to the historical context, you have a lot of different themes going on here. You know, Moby Dick can be read as a parable about race relations, and it will become much more overt and direct in his great short story, Benito Sereno, in which he talks about the psychological costs of being complicit in the slave industry. But on board the Pequod, you have a, uh, and this is part of the book's fiction, because it would not have been necessarily this way at the time, but he gives us a very multicultural image 
of a whaling ship. You have people from all over the world here who have different functions, who are bringing their different ethnic backgrounds and different beliefs. His best friend on the ship is a, uh, you know, a Polynesian cannibal uh, harpooner named Queequeg, who's probably the most in uh, beloved figure out of the book and part of what the novel is questioning is ethnocentrism of americans and that sort of puritan notion of we've been put on the earth to uh you know to convert to make the world whiter in a sense right you can also look at it as a uh, environmental novel the very name of the ship refers back to the Pequot tribe, which the Puritans, you know, massacred uh, in the founding of the country. So there is a large part of this book that if you want to think about, and and again, we even have a white whale. So part of what we're pursuing here, you can read the novel as Ahab uh, pursuing an obsession with whiteness, which let's face it, that makes the book very contemporary. Right. And so we have a chapter in here on, uh, the whiteness of the well. And although on the one hand, throughout the book, we have all this very scientific stuff he's lifted from all over the place. It's very reliable and very well-informed and very useful. Then we have a chapter that is utterly without any biological sense, but makes tons of metaphorical sense. He says, you know, certainly the most evil bear is the polar bear, which is white. And in nature, we know the worst shark is the white shark. Well, is a white shark any more evil than a tiger shark or any other particularly aggressive species of shark? Almost certainly not. But of course, he's making his point again and again. And it's interesting because it's almost like we're trying to lure readers in and then make them think whether they want to or not. They're here to chase a well. And then he gets them thinking, well, maybe everything that's white is evil. No, wait a minute. What does that say about slavery? It's almost like he's toying with the uninformed readers, but he's trying to lure them in further and make them work a little harder too. That that chapter you mentioned is one of the most celebrated in the book in terms of it's just its pure poetry. And what you can think of Melville doing is kind of dissecting the notion of whiteness. And again, the ethnocentric sense that whiteness means purity, that it means uh, benignness, that it, you know, it's the absence of color. And he turns that around and he really gives us the idea of what's scariest about white is the is the abstraction of it the emptiness of it and so the other thing about that chapter that's really interesting and this has been done by uh, a lot of famous literary critics is it's is it's essentially written in iambic pentameter so you can break it down into lines and that's a good sense of of melville's style and how insistent he was on creating a uh, passages of this book that could be read as pure poetry. Right. The only And the only later writers who I think of very significant levels who probably approach this level of complexity would be at times Hemingway, at times Faulkner, and later Cormac McCarthy in parts of Toni Morrison, perhaps. But it's... Yeah, I think certainly Faulkner is you know was hugely influenced by Moby Dick and a lot of what we think of as the sort of digressiveness of Faulkner uh you know comes straight out of Melville absolutely 
Now, one of the things, as we talk about the poetical nature of much of it, one of the things that I know you'd like to emphasize and talk about too, is that there is quite a bit of humor in in terms of asides and observations throughout the book as well. Yeah, I mean, I think if we think of great American novels, we tend to think of them as uh, dark and, you know, tragedies. And certainly that's that element in Moby Dick with Ahab. But there's a lot of lightness and there is a lot of attempts at humor. The whole, I would say the whole opening hundred pages really give us a sort of comedy about whaling. I would note that right away in the opening, in the opening passages, once you get past the famous opening line, call me Ishmael, we get into, there's a flatulence joke right. in there. Now you have to, you have to read the footnote to understand what he means by uh, a reference to Pythagoras. But <laughs> the idea is that with all the sailors passing gas on the ship, you want to be upwind as opposed <laughs> to downwind. And, you know, there's uh, the famous scene where Ishmael and Queequeg have to share a bed at the Spouter Inn, and that's played for laughs. The idea of a meek New Englander having to share a bed with a cannibal and, uh, you know, waking up to find uh, his arm around him. And there's also a lot of humor. There's a famous, uh, another famous moment where the uh, crew member is known as the Mincer cuts the penis off of the dead whale and puts the uh, puts it on his head and is, identifies uh, Ishmael says he can be the archbishop prick. So, <laughs> you know, there's, there's a, there, for those of you who think American literature has to be very serious and dark, there's a lot of penis jokes in this book. Which brings us to a critic who, brought a kind of new focus on it in late 50s, early 60s. And I think probably his understanding is a bit overstated at times, but we can probably divert it a little bit. And he he makes a very good point. So a guy named Leslie Fiedler is a Freudian critic who wrote a famous book, Love and Death in the American Novel. And in that, he basically claims that particularly in Moby Dick and in Adventures Huckleberry Finn, we have the primary mode of human contact in all these is homoerotic. Now, where I think he probably overstates the case slightly is erotic, because if we take it that far in his essay on the Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, we're turning Jim into a pedophile, which is probably not appropriate. On the other hand, if we think more so- homosocial, that it's books about men tying together with men and perhaps sometimes in erotic circumstances and sometimes not. And, you know, we have Moby Dick, which is men isolated from the world and only among men. We have the adventures Huckleberry Finn coming, you know, less than 30 years later. And it's about the boy and the man mostly diverted away from society for much of the book. We have little women uh, from a feminine standpoint. And we do see this men with men, motif and occasionally women of women motif and not as much interaction men and women until maybe the modernists in the in the 20s challenged that to a degree so there's a lot of that going on in the book as well yeah i think fiedler's idea like all theories becomes a little reductive but 
Yes. I, th- I think you could extend that notion of the homosocial all the way through our popular culture. And when you get the idea of, of, the, of the men being among men and that homoerotic element, you can think of even down to the genre of buddy flicks. Right. Uh, if you... If you if you've ever seen that horrible late '80s movie Cash and Tango with uh, Kurt Russell <laughs> and, and Sylvester Cash. Stallone, right. Tango and Cash. Sorry, I had them reversed. <laughs> Tango and Cash. Um, you know that's a very homoerotic movie. Sure. There's all kinds of theories about Top Gun and how homoerotic that is. I think sometimes that making that claim, I get a little uncomfortable with it because people tend to use that as a way of uh, maybe denigrating the the aspect of it instead of celebrating. But Fiedler's Fiedler's main point is that the the world of men tends to be an escape from from women who represent a world of responsibility. And I think it's one of the more interesting things we forget about Ahab until recently when people have begun to produce their own versions of the novel is that he is a married man and he late in life has a son and the notion of going to sea is a is a way of getting away from the constraints of that civilized world that women represent right and the first few chapters of this book do not celebrate that for him they challenge him on that with his right. his co-owners of the boat who you know are pointing out you're you're not in the shape you're not the right age uh, you've got a small child you've got a wife why would you do this but it, his obsessiveness is so great and you almost do have a a first half second half divide in this novel because the first half as you say sets itself up as a more comedic adventure tell in some ways and a good example would be that we make a very big deal out of Queequeg in the first many chapters of the book and from the last Third of the book, Queequeg, other than his bed, aka a coffin, more or less disappears from the narrative right. compared to, say, Ahab, who we don't even see in the early part of the book, whose obsessiveness, excuse me, and it becomes the primary focus of the last third of the novel to really the loss of all else in the book. So we do see a flip that happens halfway through where we start focusing more on this the tragic character of Ahab and what he's like and how he acts in all these ways. One of the great unanswered questions in American literary history is how much of Moby Dick had Melville written before he met Hawthorne and had that decisive transformation. Everett Dykink has a letter in which he claims that he had read an original draft of Moby Dick and it was a thoroughly enjoyable sort of comedy about whaling. And clearly there's a question of did Melville just rip up and start all over again or did he patch did he patch the new new chapters he wrote after August 1850 into the book. So you can read this as a, a, almost like a starting over. There's a character who's mentioned early on, uh, Bulkington, who you're set up to believe is going to be a major figure. And then he disappears for a long time until we learn in a very passing way that he's died. So I think there's, I, I think the composition history of the book makes it very clear that, that he had one idea and then he took it in a different, darker direction, which leads us to the question of what exactly Ahab uh, symbolizes. And, you know, we mentioned a little bit ago that he's a Miltonic tragic figure. 
What what exactly would you say that means, Scott? You ought to look for a white whale. A whale as white and as big as a mountain of snow. To chase that white whale on both sides of land. Well, when we think of the great reverse that happens in Paradise Lost by Milton, is that although there's never any doubt that Satan is the problem with everything and that Satan is the center of all the darkness in the universe and all those kinds of things in the you know creation story and the fall of the angels to become demons and devils and the creation of hell and all these things. At the same time, he becomes a tragic figure in the classic sense because he was so high and he's brought so low and it's his inability to bow down or to worship or reverence others that makes him. So the things that make him ferocious and strong and great are the exact same problems that are going to bring him low. And his own fate is written in his character. There's a term that's always associated with uh, Ahab, and it was it was a term that was used a lot. Hawthorne, a lot of Hawthorne's characters suffer from this, and it's monomania, uh, a sort of obsession with the self. Yes. And Ahab's basic grievance with the universe is that he can't control it. He feels that the universe has smited him and he wants revenge. And so most of the great dialogue that you are, excuse me, I should say soliloquies that Ahab delivers are all about his bitterness and his anger at God, at the the father who has abandoned him and left him in this um, the vicious nature. Absolutely. That his desire is to punch through the pasteboard mask, the the deceptively simple image, and find what malevolent force is working behind. He says in the penultimate chapter before we get to the three chapters of the chase against Moby Dick, he first says, crying out, uh, I feel deadly faint, bowed and humped as though I were Adam staggering beneath the piled century since paradise. God, 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 crack my heart, stayed my brain, mockery, mockery, bitter, biting mockery of gray hairs. Have I lived enough joy to wear ye and seem and feel thus entirely old? And then lower on the page, he says, what is it? What nameless, inscrutable, unearthly thing is it? What concerning hidden Lord and master and cruel, remorseless emperor commands me that against all natural lovings, belongings, I so keep pushing and crowding and jamming myself on all the time, recklessly making me reach to do what is in my own proper natural heart. I durst not so much as dare. Is Ahab Ahab? Is it I, God, or who that lifts this arm? If the great sun move not of himself, but is an errand boy in heaven, nor one single star can revolve, but by some invisible power, how can this one small heart beat, this one small brain think thoughts, unless God does that beating, does the thinking, does that living, and not I? By heaven, man, we're turned round and round this world like yonder windless, and fate is the handspike. That's a perfect example of just the beautiful language that he writes in. And again, I kind of lament the fact that a, a contemporary author going for the great American novel probably could not indulge in that kind of uh, formal formality. It brings up the idea that on a theological level, a lot of what this parable of Moby Dick is about is free will versus predestination. Right. Does Ahab, is he fated to play this role of the, of the American Prometheus, or is he 
hurtling himself towards self-destruction on his own terms. So the monomania is a fascinating sort of uh, character, a way of approaching character. And I would, I would just add that a lot of great American novels that are about people tend to dramatize this driving, ruthless sort of ambition, whether it's in business or whether it's in some sort of revenge, sure. because people are interested not only in the psychology, but how these characters convince other people to follow along. And in that way, politically, Moby Dick is especially important in the 20th century because it can be read as a parable of fascism huh. and how one charismatic figure can conjole an entire crowd. You can think of uh, Ahab's speeches that are done in uh, chapter 36, the quarter deck, and chapter 119, the candles, in which he is standing above the crew, sort of whipping them into a frenzy. And I, ha I almost hesitate to go this route, but I dare a contemporary reader to read some of those uh, passages in which Ahab delivers speeches and not think of Trump rallies. Right. Or Huey Long in the 30s, uh, and yep. not to mention other people famously who've tried to get everyone whipped up and excited. Uh, even if you think about where we see the most monomania and the true monomania in the United States, wouldn't it have to be football fans? <laughs> yeah. You live in Alabama and yeah. you're, you're betwixt between. That's true. Uh, you, you live, work not too far from Auburn. And of course, the universe for the last several years in college football has circled around Tuscaloosa and Nick Saban. And have you ever seen more whipping up and monomania and fervor than you've seen on a Saturday Alabama game? I, I'm not sure Nick Saban would be appreciated uh, being compared to Ahab, but he definitely has that sort of monomania in the sense that he's ruthlessly uh, focused on, on winning. You know, that comparison brings up the idea that it's sort of a cliche in popular discourse to refer to uh, refer to people as having an Ahabian obsession. And so you see people all the time talking about this is his white whale or that's his white whale. Right. You know, the one that used to always crack me up was back in the 90s with they referred to Kenneth Starr as, as his white wheel was Bill Clinton. He was going to take down uh. Bill Clinton. Even Peyton Manning was compared to Ahab at one point, which, you know, that's a pretty stretch of a metaphor for me. Yeah. But it just tells you again how these figures enter our popular culture and, and become kind of uh, go-to symbols for human responses. Our main character, and certainly the opening line is one of the more quoted lines, call me Ishmael. And at first, you know, I love the complete am ambiguity. Sorry, I'm searching for a term there. The ambiguity of that opening line because when he says call me Ishmael that the implication is it's not really his name but he's referring to himself from the very start of the book as this kind of symbolic name taking it from the biblical character the the orphan child who's who's abandoned there in in Genesis and and is never given his full due and is never given his his birthright so much we have the he is an observer he's a little bit of a we later think of characters like Nick Carraway. Ishmael as a character after these after they get on the boat hardly exists as a character. He doesn't 
had conversations with Starbuck or Ahab. He occasionally will grab someone else's hand when they're rendering out the fat from, from the sperm well, or he'll have something with Queequeg, but he's mostly there as an outside observer, just talking about what he sees, relating other things that have happened. And of course, oddly telling whole chapters where he's not privy to any of the conversation. And we always have our, our question in those chapters, is this actually supposed to be Ishmael or is this a second, third person implied author narrator? And maybe ultimately that doesn't really matter which one it is or not. Uh, the voice doesn't change so much. So probably it's supposed to be Ishmael, but he is also, of course, the survivor who alone lives to tell the tale. Um, sorry for that spoiler. We won't give you all of them. Uh, the book is, of course, a hundred and well, we're coming up on 200 years before it's too much longer, right? 170 yeah. years old. So he's interesting in that way. But what about the members of the crew? A lot of them are unnamed, the, but a lot of attention is paid to the harpoonists. And I find these guys very fascinating based on some of the things we've already talked about. Right. I think he's giving us, again, a sort of polyethnic view. Uh, and he's bringing a lot of you know, a lot of different religions, a lot of different uh, ethnicities into it. We have Tashtego, we have Dagu, we have, uh, we've mentioned Queequeg, we have Fadala, who's the sort of Persian whisperer to Ahab. Yeah, and he's an interesting character, isn't yeah. he? And so you've got a lot of, uh, I think partly what he's doing here is he's sort of parroting uh, American anxieties about Eastern or uh, South Southern Pacific ethnicities about them being quote unquote savages or having some sort of demonic characteristic about them and being, um, you know, being influencers. On the other hand, we have the little cabin boy Pip who plays the part of the fool to Ahab's King Lear and his complete inability to accept the violence of the, of the universe. So once again, we're just seeing a multi-ethnic crew and, and we want to reinforce the idea that that would not have been the reality in, in, uh, in 1850 or 51. And it's hard not to read this as allegorical. I mean, here we have a boat, we have harpoonist whose job it is, is to launch the first greatest strike at the well. The well is white. All the harpoonists are people of color from areas who have been harmed by the white colonization, white culture. Uh, Again, you know, a Polynesian South Islander at a time when Europeans are invading all throughout the Polynesian, you know, greater Pacific. We have a Native American gay header Indian in Testigo. So we have how American settlers treated Native Americans. We have, uh, I'm sorry, Dagu and Queequeg being from the Polynesian and Dagu, who's who's African. And Mm -hmm. Pip is, of course, African-American. And we have this idea of, of how are you being respectful toward him? How are you being responsible for him as a child? Well, we're going to leave him to float in the ocean for hours on end while we chase our well, and we're not going to worry about the incredible harm this will do him as well. So it's hard not to read allegory uh, when you see these guys and not to think that, again, Melville is challenging us and making us think of it in different ways. And again, you're right. He's And then Fadala being Persian, is that – just a reference to people's feelings of those from the Middle East and the like areas have this mystical powers, you know, Aladdin and all that, or? 
Yeah, Melville himself, Melville himself was fascinated by sort of myths of Persia, and in particular Zoroastrianism uh, and Manichaean Manichaeism. Manichaeism, the idea is there's two forces in the universe, light and dark, good and evil. So a lot of the novel plays with those sort of contraries, those dialectics that cannot be resolved. But I also think there was a huge, again, sort of, uh, you know, representations of minorities at the time either had, you were either the savage or the noble savage. And I think a lot of what he does with with these characters is at the same time that they're allegorical, he does try to humanize yeah. them and give them, uh, you know, give them uh, psychology. And there's a there there is a brotherhood amongst the men on the ship. And you know, the the one of the great scenes is when they have to squeeze the spermaceti, and you know, Melville has this wonderfully playful, sensuous uh, image that was scandalous for his day of all of these men with their hands in these pots of spermaceti, squeezing it out and pinching each other's thumbs at the same time. And it really kind of looks forward to uh, Walt Whitman's uh, image of all the the men bathing, skinny dipping together in leaves of grass. So there is an effort, I think, to ask why America can't have a multicultural society. And it comes down to a lot of these ethnicities are exploited as labor. But on the other hand, you do have this uh, almost utopian vision of a crew from all over the world that is part of this enterprise. So, and Kirk brought it up earlier, but most of the lighting that was done around the world, and certainly in the United States at the time, was done with sperm oil. They would, the the wells, if, if don't think of a humpback well with the kind of sloping away skull. The pictures are like the giant guppy looking wells that you've seen in covers of Moby Dick are not as far from the reality of what a sperm well looks like as you might think. And they have, as he explains at great length in the book, massive amounts of fat and blubber in this giant sphere around the cranium. And what they would do is they would kill the well they would strip it. They would, as he, as he again explains, do their best to cut out and extract all the fat and then boil it down into liquid fat and squeeze all the solid chunks. But it smelled very sweet. It did not have the kind of, don't think of walking into a Burger King and smelling the old lard that was used in French fries. It had a very <laughs> sweet, fragrant smell. And it was, as people's norms and ideas changed around the world, Many people lamented the passing away of sperm oil lamps because they were almost smokeless. The smell was sweet. The light was so bright. After oil could be refined into kerosene and other ways to light lamps and lanterns, it much cheaper than that replaced the hunting of sperm wells. When I'm sure the sperm wells are very thankful. And they've, I read up in getting ready for this that the estimation now is they're between. 400 and half a million, 400,000 to 500,000 sperm whales probably alive in the world right now is the, is the estimate according to my biology expert, Mr. Google. And there's there's only one country that still allows whaling. Am I, am I right I in know. that? It's and a, it's very contra- controversial. I think Japan. They, uh, yeah. They're certainly famous for slaughtering dolphins and, and orcas. So the good news is they've sprung back because they're probably down to less than 100,000 by the end of the whaling industry, although they haven't come back 
significantly if you think about how long it's been and the growth of American population in that same time period. On the other hand, with the rise of oil, suddenly the, there was decreased need for the sperm oil, or I should say with uh, fossil fuel oil, there's decreased need for sperm oil. And it wasn't like it was any kind of human development and a moral decision that really rescued the sperm whales as much as it was economics in the long run. Capitalism just went to plunder somewhere else. Just, it just turned to a different place to, to find its cash. Different resource. Now, when you read the novel, you do have chapters on the economy and how people do this. But you know, a lot of it is, especially in the last quarter of the novel, pretty exciting stuff. I mean, there are well hunts. And it's the way these guys do it, it's pretty dangerous. They're taking their life in their hands, right? Yeah. I would say those last three chapters that are the three-day chase that eventuates the sinking of the Pequod and Ahab's sudden death. I mean, one of the fascinating things about the book is for all of the dramatic monologues and Shakespearean language and all the philosophical inquiry, Ahab gets the rope caught around his neck and is snapped out of the boat in a sentence. And if you're not reading carefully, you can you can flow right on by that. Right. And his boat gets sucked down into a vortex and you can float right on by that as well. The, right, uh, right. So what as you read the book, you know, they lower the the attack boats, which are smaller boats with six men to oar someone to steer it, harpoonist and the captain of the boat, if you will, as opposed to the ship being the lancer who deposits lance after lance and smaller harpoon after smaller harpoon to the well until he's tied to too many of them and he can't pull under and all these things and, and kills them. And all this is rendered. But, you know, I think Mark Twain is the guy who really discovers paragraphing, <laughs> uh, Kirk, because when you read Dickens, when you read George Eliot, when you read all these other writers, very often you have very important facts buried in the middle of a lengthy paragraph without a whole lot of space on each side. And then you read Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, you get these short paragraphs or paragraph breaks to for emphasis. And of course, we don't think of Twain as someone who reads a lot of poetry or uses poetic elements in his novels, but that idea of the line break and the stanza break, which is so significant in poetry, you do see showing up in the best Twain work. And I, I wonder if that's where it's really discovered. I'm sure other people can think of other writers who did it before Twain, but that's where I really place the idea that line breaks and paragraph breaks add emphasis, which is so significant to later writers. I think there was a sense that those, uh, because popular reading was associated with a lot of dialogue and a lot of, uh, a lot of action, I think the idea that those thick passages of description were, that's what was supposedly right. made a work literary. And so, you know, you can contrast James to Twain, where James has just, Henry James has just those long digressive paragraphs uh, splitting the hairs of, of, a, of a thought down to, right. the, down to the roots. And, you know, I think, but I will say this, one, I think one misperception about maybe Dick and people being scared about it is that it's such a long book, yes. but the chapters are short. Most of these chapters are maybe right. six pages long, uh, depending on what edition you have. So one way of reading them is to, you know, just take a couple a day and really savor 
the language. I think you know that's one way of really overcoming our prejudice against the uh, against the idea that it's that it's too big and then it's too thick. You're absolutely right, though. So when you're in a rush and you're going to the ball game and you stop and grab a burger, you don't really take your time and think about how well it's made. You kind of wolf it down and then you're on your way to the ball game, right? But when you go to the the nicest restaurant in New Orleans you've ever been to, or in in downtown Charleston, you, you you don't rush through your food as such. You take time to savor it and really enjoy it. And certainly novels that are written with the high level of prose excellence as Moby Dick are things that you want to take your time with, not be feeling like you have to rush through for the plot because the plot is less significant than right. the destination is less important than the voyage. The intellectual journey. At the same time, I think one of the ways of understanding that individual sentences that there's really not a lot of filler in Moby Dick. You might think of it as right. having blubber, but it ain't filler. And one of the ways of recognizing that is if you're on Twitter, you can follow the Moby Dick account, which yeah. you know tweets out uh, a sentence or two per day. And really, those individual lines are like little wisdoms or little affirmations there are little philosophical cones, if you want to call them that. And it it's really demonstrates how um, intellectual the book is in a great way. Right. So that brings us to the chapters that probably befuddle readers who are looking for a book about a whale hunt, chapters on cetology, where he very he uses book terminology to divide whales into different versions. One group is this folio, and one group is this folio. Uh, chapters on rope and so on. Well, this is back to metafiction again, right? Yeah. Moby Dick is a quest for knowledge uh, as much as revenge. On a theological level, it's a, it's a quest for understanding humanity's place in a, in a natural world that we want to believe should be benign because of our humanism, but in reality is ambivalent towards us right. because it has no feeling. In a scientific vein, it's an effort to test the, the limits of human knowledge. So when he's going through all of these chapters, classifying scientific discoveries, you know, I think people get impatient with that because it's not dramatic material, but you have to think of it as, a, as an intellectual pursuit or a quest. We said that the opening lines of the novel are Call Me Ishmael. Well, actually, the opening lines of the novel are about five pages of quotes from other books Absolutely. called yep. The Extracts. And that's another way in which we're talking about this book as an anatomy. We're, we're taking all the wisdom out of previous books and trying to synthesize it into the grand compilation of what is known about a particular industry or thing uh, and the whale. So I, what I would say is there's a couple different ways to deal with this. If you're absolutely turned off by those chapters, what I would recommend you do is, re, you know, read the action adventure first, then come back to the more scientific ones, then reread the book from beginning to end. And I think you'll have a lot better appreciation of the place that those those kinds of chapters uh, fit in there. But the other thing about those chapters that's important is as he's explaining the function of different elements on the 
whaling ship is that those are really metaphors for individuality versus the community. Right. There's a couple chapters about the lines and about the ropes and the way that people are connected. I mentioned the spermaceti chapter about the squeezing of the hands in a joyous community. Those are all images of community right. and the way that people are brought together. So we always have this juxtaposition on the one hand of the isolated individual who's against God and nature and the universe and everyone else in Ahab. And it's the isolado, that Byronic hero who always stands alone and stands apart versus all the others who represent community and joining together. And there's that divide. And you can't say that Ahab isn't warned enough throughout the novel about his fate. Over and over and over again, everyone warns him what can happen. Yeah. And yet his monomania, his obsessiveness, his hubris, his rage stop him from listening. And even the chapter that discusses the differences between John Locke and Immanuel Kant. They're they're about different ways of knowing, you know, do you understand the world through your immediacy in it or through a philosophical filter? And is your world about the rights of the individual or is it about the rights of the the whole and and the importance of the whole and all these things? So, and even then when we think of all the biblical imagery, you know, even in Ahab's death, there's reference to the gospel. The primary fracture that happens between man and God at the beginning of the Bible is they eat of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that quest for understanding the nature of good and evil and acknowledging it and knowing it. So, you know, is Moby Dick more evil than Ahab? Ahab would say, yes, I would probably say uh, no. I, I understand Ahab, but I certainly understand the wells need to survive a lot more and understand Ahab's need to kill the well. And uh, Starbuck in particular tells Ahab it's it's crazy to project on a dumb, mute thing. It's an animal. It has no feelings. It didn't take your leg off because it hated you. It took it off because that's a defense mechanism of of right. a of an animal. And the captain of the other ship who has lost his arm mm-hmm. sees it that way. And goes, well, I was just in the wrong place. He got my arm. The harpoon gouged my arm and tore it all to pieces. And thank God that saved my life. But it's almost like he lives because he's able to not let himself be roped to Moby Dick in the way that Ahab. And there's a level of stoic acceptance there that I think Ishmael is promoting. But you bring up the meetings of the ship because when the ships come together at sea and spend time allowing the men to kind of talk and trade stories. Those are called gams. Right. And those are important in the novel because that's another metaphor of communalism. Not to be confused with gan, by the way. That's right. We we kind of wish that they had been called gan so we could have played off that in the in this podcast. But so much of the novel is about the uh, the individual's place in a working society. And again Ahab becoming that sort of charismatic leader where one individual's will sways the majority. And, you know, there are no checks and balances. And in some way, the enablers are as guilty as Ahab. Right. The last symbol we have here in the novel is, of course, uh, I want to say it's Teshtigo as the Pequot goes down after Moby Dick has attacked it and bashed it apart and it goes down in a whirlpool vortex to go under the water. The mast is sticking up and a single seahawk comes in to 
I, I guess to harrow them or, or, or mock them, it almost seems in Testigo's last act is to slam that symbol of nature with his, with the hammer against the, the masthead there. Yeah. It's one last defiant gesture. You can think of that as against uh, nature. Stephen Miller going down after the election, <laughs> if you want. <laughs> So, Kirk, does it fit our criteria? I think Moby Dick basically establishes the criteria. So, yes, right. it, it uh, yeah. again, there's no, no more great American novel that is quintessential than Moby Dick. It's, it's clearly it's American. Uh, it has the heft. It's not a short, you know, slim little thing. Uh, hundred. You were talking about the small chapters. I looked it up. 155 of those small yeah. chapters in its scope and depth in terms of what it has to say and how it says it is complex and full and thorough. And of course, is it about American themes? Well, I think we've established that it certainly is. And is it a significant artistic accomplishment? Well, yes, absolutely. And it and it has a durability. I mean, again, part of the myth of Moby Dick is the idea that it was overlooked for the 70 years after it was published. But then for it to be rediscovered and become its own kind of industry, I mean, you can go to Pittsfield, Massachusetts and visit Arrowhead, which is the house farm that uh, Melville purchased as he was writing Moby Dick. You can see the desk where he looked out the window at Mount Greylock, which resembles a uh, white whale in the distance and the degree to which it's become part of our popular culture endlessly adapted into operas absolutely and, you know at least two or three movie versions and all kinds of experimental theater productions it's kind of the quintess again a quintessential classic tale absolutely do you have any feelings about any of the movie versions you know i think the gregory peck one is a very flawed yes I think given the technology that they had at the time, but I will say this, about 20 years ago, there was a uh, made-for-television movie where... With Patrick Stewart. Exactly. Captain Jean-Luc Picard played Captain Ahab, and that was a CGI whale. And I think we are so technologically trained to spot the fakeness of CGI that it just hasn't aged. Well, and, and Stuart lacks, you know, Gregory Peck, for all its flaws, had the physical yeah. presence to play that part. Patrick Stewart, once you get him in anything bigger than the Star Trek set, really doesn't have that presence. Yeah. They made the well complete albino. It's very weird. Yeah. You can you can tell it's not, it's really kind of a, a stage prop almost. Uh, right. It looks absolutely fake. You know, the other thing I would note is there's... Maybe the greatest legacy of Moby Dick was to have in some way inspired the book and then the movie and then the franchise Jaws, because <laughs> because I have a theory that Peter Benchley and later Spielberg learned from the book that you don't introduce the monster. You build suspense by revealing as little of it as possible. Sure. And the, and the fear is felt before it is confronted. Well, and we think of even what happens with the boat at the end of Jaws and what happens with the boat at the end of Moby Dick. We're a little yeah. friendlier to the crew, than, uh, but the captain is equally 
monomaniacal. So I, I think there's something there. Yep. So one of the things that we are often going to have or usually going to have at the end of our episodes is we're going to discuss cannon fodder. Other books which we think should be promoted to the canon as great American novels, or occasionally we might say, here's a book that's a miss. Maybe others have called it a great American novel, and we disagree. For this episode, uh, Kirk, you have one that you definitely think should be promoted to great American novel status. I do, and this may be a little controversial because I think the book has in some ways been overshadowed in recent years, but there's a novel that came out about 30 years ago by Charles Johnson called Middle Passage, which is sort of a pastiche of whaling adventures and slavery adventures. And it's told from the perspective of a freed slave. His name is Rutherford Calhoun. And he essentially becomes part of the slave ship that goes to Africa. You can go through and you can tell that he's really rewriting a lot of the 19th century uh, narratives like Benito Sereno and Moby Dick. I do think it's a great book in terms of the language. When I say it's controversial, it's taking a subject like race and especially slavery and um, making some slapstick comedy out of it, which I think is uh, you probably have to be a great African-American novel to get away with. Right. I would say 30 years ago, people really held this book up as, as the next step in the great American novel in terms of how we deal with the past. We rewrite it, we appropriate it, we rewrite it, we turn on its head some of those notions of tragic heroism, and we really interrogate uh, some of our own attraction toward a book like Moby Dick. I think, unfortunately, the book has been overshadowed in the last few years by Colson Whitehead's The Underground Railroad, which does a lot of the same sort of things in terms of rewriting our histories and mythologies. And Johnson just passed away just a couple of years ago, as a literary critic, as well as a, uh, as a novelist. Uh, was not all that old, was only in his early 70s. But I do recommend that folks have a look at the book. It is not a long book in the sense of Moby Dick. It's only, the my version is only 200 pages. But I used to teach Moby Dick alongside Middle Passage as a way of getting people to sort of question our notions of greatness and epic ambition. And as an African-American writer, Johnson wrote not only seven or six or seven novels, he wrote many books of nonfiction, even a couple of books you might term philosophy and mm-hmm. kind of consideration of, of race and America and the greater world as well. And so he's definitely a very He's a fascinating writer, and it, and it pairs well with Moby Dick because of his interest in yeah. looking at things beyond the traditional familiar plot that we might come to expect as well. So that's our recommendation, and maybe at some point we can start keeping a list of these. Mm-hmm. Up next for everyone is the novel Invisible Man by Ralph Elson. This is another one that we'll discuss in the context of the great American novel. We want to thank you for listening to this podcast, the Great American Novel Podcast. Please subscribe or follow on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcast. And if you're so inclined, please leave a review. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you may enjoy others, such as Mastering the Forty of Kirk and Robert Trogdon, focusing on the short stories of F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Reading McCarthy with me, Scott Yarbrough, and guests about the works of Cormac McCarthy. 
And I would just add, if you have any questions or anything you'd like to debate us about, about what we've said, we do have an email. You can email at us at greatamericannovelpodcast at gmail.com. We thank you for listening.